Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for our Safety and Health Magazine webcast sponsored by JJ Keller. We are going to give our audience members just a moment or two to get settled in and join us today. And we'll start the presentation in about a minute or so. Thank you. Thanks again for being with us today, folks, for our Safety and Health Magazine webcast sponsored by JJ Keller. Uh, we are going to start the presentation shortly. We're just going to let a few folks get in and get settled. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Is your written hazard communication program OSHA compliant? Sponsored by JJ Keller. My name is Barry Botino, and I am an associate editor at Safety and Health. I'll be moderating today's event. Before we get started, I have a few housekeeping items to share with you today. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we will conduct a Q&A with our speakers. If you have a question, just click on that Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen, type in your question, and press the send button. We welcome your questions at any time during today's event. We'll do our very best to get to everyone's questions, but in case we run out of time, any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to our speakers. After the presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll tell you more about that later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, you can visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com events or you'll also receive a link in our post-event email. With that, let's introduce our presenters. With us today are Rachel Krupsack and Cindy Pauley. Among her many contributions as an editor at JJ Keller, Rachel writes a monthly newsletter on OSHA safety training, answers questions for subscribers, and contributes content to various publications, including the Safety Management Suite. Her topics of expertise include HASCOM, hearing conservation, and emergency action plans. Cindy joined JJ Keller in June as an editor, bringing her 13 years of safety program development and management experience to the team. She has worked in the oil and gas, chemical, manufacturing, construction, and agricultural industries. Cindy specializes in developing a wide variety of easily understandable content and regulatory insights for both customers and partners. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation today. And Rachel, whenever you're ready, take it away. Okay, thanks, Barry. Today's webcast is sponsored by the JJ Keller Chemical Management Service. With this service, you can get help from JJ Keller experts to manage your chemical inventory and STS library, ensure proper labeling, and save you a lot of time. Plus, give you confidence that it's done right and you're in compliance. This service provides support and guidance for these core areas of your HASCOM program. So on behalf of the JJ Keller HASCOM Chemical Management Service, welcome to today's webcast. So OSHA's HASCOM standard routinely makes the agency's list of top 10 violations. 
And recently, just a few weeks ago, preliminary data for that fiscal year 2022 was released, and it shows that HASCOM was, again, the most frequently cited violation in general industry with over 2,400 citations. And there are many reasons for the different violations. It could be from a lack of safety data sheets to lack of training, but today we'll focus on the HASCOM written program requirement. And whether it's the lack of a program or a program that's not current or maybe an inadequate program, year after year, it does remain a top HASCOM violation, even though it's been part of that standard for decades. So today we'll cover what you need to be to include in your written program to be in compliance. So as you can see on this slide, we'll talk about the scope of the HASCOM standard regarding who's covered and who's exempt, what must be in your written program, a breakdown of each requirement, evaluating your written program, state plan states, common trouble spots, and a checklist for compliance. So before we delve into the specifics of the written program requirement, we'll start with a quick overview of the HASCOM standard. Employers who have hazardous chemicals in their workplaces are required to implement a HASCOM program that includes labels on containers of hazardous chemicals, safety data sheets, and training for workers. Employers also must describe in a written program how they'll meet these requirements in each of these areas. HASCOM does apply to general industry, shipyard, marine terminals, longshoring, and construction. Any employer with one employee and one hazardous chemical is covered. HASCOM covers any chemical which is known to be present in the workplace in such a manner that employees may be exposed under normal conditions of use or in a foreseeable emergency. And most chemicals that you use in the workplace do have some hazard potential, which means they'll likely be covered by the rule. So in order to understand the HASCOM standard and that written program requirement, it's important to understand how OSHA defines hazardous chemical. And as you can see on this slide, they define it as any chemical which is classified as a physical hazard or a health hazard, a simple asphyxiant, combustible dust, pyrophoric gas, or a hazard not otherwise classified. And the majority of these terms are defined in the standard at 1910-1200 paragraph C. Cindy? Thanks, Rachel. And thank you for everyone who is joining us today. That's right. So in the terms health hazard and physical hazard are also defined in the standard at 1910.1200 paragraph C. What you can see on the slide here is a breakdown of some of the hazardous effects, and they're kind of broken down by health hazard or physical hazard, as you can see, and we won't go through the entire list, but you can see most of those here. Now, keep in mind that hazard refers to an inherent property of a substance that is capable of causing an adverse effect. Chemical exposure can cause or contribute to many serious adverse health effects, such as cancer, sterility, health disease, or I'm sorry, heart disease, lung damage, and burns. Some chemicals are also physical hazards and have the potential to cause fires, explosions, and other dangerous incidents. As Rachel mentioned, a hazardous chemical also may be classified as a simple asphyxiant, combustible dust, pyrophoric gas, or hazard not otherwise classified. And sometimes you'll hear somebody say HNOC or HNOC, which is just meaning hazard not otherwise classified. Again, these terms are defined at 1910.1200 paragraph C. Now, just a little note on that though, combustible dust is defined separately by directive CPL 0300-008. And you can see that on the slide, it's referenced in the second bullet point there, just because this is typically associated specifically with the agricultural industry. Now, with some exceptions, if your employees are exposed to hazardous chemicals, you are covered under the HASCOM standard and must develop a written program. The standard defines exposure or exposed to mean that an employee is subject, subjected to in the course of their employment to a chemical that is a physical or a health hazard, and it includes potential. So for example, accidental or possible exposure. Subjected in terms of health hazards includes any route of entry. So those would be like inhalation, ingestion, skin uh, contact or absorption. Now all employers who fall under the HASCOM standard must develop 
implement and maintain a hazard communication program unless they are exempted. And we'll go through some of the exemptions a little bit later. What sometimes catches employers is that the requirement applies whether your company generates the hazard or has the or the hazard is generated by other employers on the work site. So keep that in mind. In fact, employers on multi-employer work sites who do not use hazardous chemicals, but whose employees are exposed to the chemicals used by other employers on the work site are required to have a program and train their employees on the hazards of the chemicals in their work areas. So we'll discuss again in more detail later in the presentation. I'm sure you picked up on the fact that we mentioned there are some exemptions, people usually do. Uh, laboratories and operations where chemicals are only handled in sealed containers, such as warehouses, do not need to have a written HASCOM program, although they do have other responsibilities under the HASCOM standard, which can be found in 1910.1200 paragraph B, B as in boy. So Rachel, would you mind covering a few of these exemptions for us? Sure, I can do that. So let's take a look at this slide. Certain hazardous substances are regulated by other agencies, and for that reason, OSHA does exempt them from the coverage by the HAZCOM rule. And you can see some of these on the slide, and we'll find and you can find more information in paragraph B6 of 1910-1200. And I'd like to briefly touch on what's considered an article because we do get quite a few questions about that. HAZCOM defines article as a manufactured item that's other than a fluid or a particle, which is formed to a specific shape or design during manufacture, has end use functions dependent in whole or in part upon its shape or design during end use, and must not release more than very small quantities of a hazardous chemical or pose a physical hazard or health risk to employees under normal conditions of use. So then the next question here is what is considered normal condition of use? So an employer may have a manufactured item that meets the definition of an article but if it's burned, it produces a hazardous byproduct. So then the question becomes, is burning normal use for that product? So if burning occurs during its normal use and more than trace amounts of a hazardous byproduct are produced, it can't be exempted as an article. And normal use does not include incidental exposure. So if a hazardous chemical can be expected to be released only when the item is repaired, that's not considered of that part of that normal condition of use and the item would then be considered an article. So some examples here are stainless steel tables, vinyl upholstery, and tires. So basically, if the product will be processed in some way after leaving the manufacturing site, maybe it would be heated or welded or glued or sawed, and a hazardous chemical could be emitted, it probably will not qualify for that article exemption. We've listed a few more exemptions on this slide, and I'd like to talk a little bit about consumer products because we do get a quite a few questions about that. HASCOM doesn't cover consumer products when the products are used in the workplace um, in such a way that the duration and the frequency of their use and therefore the employee's exposure is not greater than what the typical consumer would experience. So keep in mind this exemption is based on how it's actually used in the workplace rather than the chemical manufacturer's intended use of the product. So for instance, if an employee uses kitchen cleanser to clean the break room sink twice a week, that would be considered a normal consumer exposure. But if an employee would clean all of the sinks every day, that would exceed a normal consumer exposure and HASCOM would then apply. And OSHA does say that the employer is in the best position to de determine whether that product used in the workplace would be, need to be included in their HASCOM program. And also it's certainly possible that you'll have some consumer products that are covered and some that aren't based on their use in the workplace. And another thing I'd like to touch on here is that items in first aid cabinets are not covered by HASCOM. Drugs intended for personal consumption by employees while in the workplace are exempted from the standard. So if your operations and your, and your chemicals are not entirely exempted and you have some hazardous chemicals that your employees are exposed to, you must develop that written HASCOM program. And basically, this is a record of what your organization has done and will do to comply with the HASCOM standard. It does not have to be lengthy or complicated, but it should provide enough details for OSHA to assess whether a good faith effort is being made to train and inform your employees. And you can maintain this program either on paper or electronically, as long as employees have access to it upon request. And if your employee's job assignment requires travel between various geographical locations, you can keep that written program at the primary work location. 
And finally, as we can see on the slide here, the program must be available upon request, not only to your employees, as we mentioned, but also their designated representatives and any OSHA officials. Cindy? Thank you. So Rachel just ran through a lot of responsibilities of just the written program portion of the HASCOM standard. So you'll wanna be sure that you appoint a coordinator for your program. It's very important because without an overall coordinator, critical program elements can and may be overlooked. The coordinator is basically going to have overall responsibility for developing your chemical inventory, organize your safety data sheets, setting up employee training, updating files on chemicals present in the workplace, and processing requests for information from employees and possibly even OSHA if they request. The coordinator should know how the program was implemented through careful documentation, and they want to be able, like I said, to answer questions that, in case OSHA were to call or stop by for a visit, they want to be prepared for that, and having a designated coordinator is going to be the best way to go about doing that. The person designated for the overall program coordination should then probably identify some staff members that are going to be responsible for particular activities, like maintaining the SDSs, because it's going to be hard for one person to do all of that, obviously. In some cases, the activities may already be part of your current job assignments. So, for example, site supervisors, they're frequently responsible for the training and ensuring the SDSs are available. So quite possibly you might already be doing that. Now let's talk a little bit about written program requirements under the standard. It's critical that you cover all of the required program elements. We covered some of these when we were discussing coordinator responsibilities, but let's go a little bit further into this. So your written program must address, first of all, labels and other forms of warning, safety data sheets, which we just mentioned, employee information and training, the chemical inventory or list, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a, here shortly, multi-employer workplaces, hazards of non-routine tasks, and hazards associated with chemicals in unlabeled pipes in employees' work areas. Now, you may be wondering what's meant by non-routine tasks. There may be some tasks that are performed on occasion that will expose employees to different chemical hazards that they are, than they're used to being exposed to, as well as require novel control measures. For example, let's take a manufacturing facility. It may be necessary, necessary periodically to say drain and clean out reactor vessels. So that would be an example of a non-routine um, task. Other examples might include confined space entry and tank cleaning as examples. Employees may be exposed to cleaning chemicals that are not normally in the workplace and the usual controls for the process may not protect them. So this may require specific personal protective equipment to be used. Your program, you'll wanna make sure, addresses how you'll handle these types of situations and make sure that employees involved have the necessary information to stay properly protected. So please note the last bullet on our slide here. Work activities may be performed by employees in areas where chemicals are transferred through unlabeled pipes. Prior to starting work in these particular areas, employees need to be informed about the identity and hazards of the chemicals that are inside the pipes, as well as required precautionary measures. So your program must also address how you'll inform employees of the hazards and precautionary measures for these types of situations. Now let's break down each of the elements you need to include in the program. First, we're gonna look at what you should include when it comes to labels and other forms of warning. Your program should, first of all, designate the name or job title of the person responsible for ensuring labeling of ship containers and in-plant containers. Chemical manufacturers and, import and importers are required to provide labels on ship containers with a product identifier, a signal word, pictograms, hazard statements, precautionary statements, and the name, address, and phone number of the responsible party. Therefore, when you receive a hazardous chemical from a supplier, all the information should be located on the container. However, supplemental information may also be there. In my experience, they have been very good at providing safety data sheets or information that may be missing in the shipment. So do not hesitate to reach out to the shippers or manufacturers for that information. Now, in your program, you'll also want to describe any in-house labeling system you use, and you may find it helpful to include samples of these labels for your training, in fact. As the employer, you're required to ensure that chemical containers in the workplace are labeled. 
you may use the same label from the supplier, a GHS or global harmonization system style label with or without the responsible party information, or you may label workplace containers with alternate labeling systems such as the National Fire Protection Agency or NFPA or hazardous materials identification system, otherwise some people refer that as HIMSS. Remember though that any container of hazardous chemicals in the workplace that does not use the GHS style must at a minimum include the product identifier and general information concerning the hazards of the chemicals. In this case, whatever alternate method you choose, your employees have to have access to the complete hazard information in your written program. So if you are using labeling alternatives in your facility, such as putting the label information on batch tickets for stationary process tanks or using posters for air emissions as examples, you should describe this in your written program. It's also important to list your procedures to review and update label information whenever necessary to ensure that labels that fall off or become unreadable are immediately replaced. And also you want to go over how you provide copies of posters used, if there are any, to inform employees about the law or where HASCOM information is located. As you start to prepare your written program, you'll want to be aware of the secondary container labeling requirements and exceptions also. Now, you're not required to label secondary containers into which hazardous chem chemicals are transferred from a labeled container if those secondary containers are intended only for the immediate use of the employee who, who performs the transfer. Now, what they mean by immediate use is that the hazardous chemical will be under the control of and used only by the person who transfer transfers the material from a labeled container and only within the work shift in which it was transferred. I know that sounds like a lot of information, but problems start to arise when the shift ends, as an example, and there's material left in a secondary container. That's usually where OSHA will come in and spot people or, or auditors will find issues. Or if another employee needs to use it in between the, the time of the shift transfer. So before the chemical can be passed along to another employee or another shift, the container must be properly labeled. At a minimum, this means the label must contain the product identifier and words, pictures, symbols, or a combination thereof, which provide general information about the chemicals hazards. OSHA inspectors will check to see that required container labels are legible and prominently displayed, and that the product label can be cross-referenced to an SDS. OSHA will also evaluate any in-house or workplace labeling or any alternative labeling that's used. So I'm gonna turn things over back over to Rachel as I believe we have a quick poll for you. Rachel, is that right? Yes. So today's webcast is sponsored by the JJ Keller Chemical Management Service. With this new service, get help from JJ Keller experts to manage your chemical inventory and SDS library and ensure proper labeling and compliance. We can even review and update your written HASCOM program. And last, we'll provide regular reporting and communication on your HASCOM program performance. And Cindy, I think that's back to you. Thanks, Rachel. If you'd like more information on the JJ Keller Chemical Management Service, let us know by selecting your interests on the poll here. And as a thank you, we'll email a copy of our brand new chemical management report. While we're waiting for people to have a chance to respond to the poll, it looks like we have some questions coming in. So let me take a moment to answer one of those now. So it looks like somebody's asking, if I have fewer than 10 employees, do I need to have a written HASCOM program? That's actually a very popular question that we're asked often. OSHAN requires companies of all sizes to have a written HASCOM program that meets the requirements of the standards. So if there are chemicals that apply that, with the exceptions and things that we've talked about already, you do need a HASCOM program. I think where people get confused on this is the uh, reportability for injury and illness logs and things like that when there are, are more than 10 employees. But with HASCOM program, it doesn't matter if you have one or 101 people, you do have to have a written program or HASCOM program. So now let's turn it back over to Rachel to discuss some safety data sheets. All right, thanks, Cindy. So as Cindy said, we'll take a deeper dive here into safety data sheets and 
regarding what you should include in your written program. We'll take a look at this slide. The first thing here is to include the name or job title of the person responsible for obtaining and maintaining SDSs. And many companies have found it convenient to include on their purchase orders the name and address of the person designated in their company to receive SDSs. And when you do receive a new SDS, your responsible person should check it against that chemical inventory and against the version of the SDS in your files. And you'll also want to check that newer SDS for any new hazard or protective information that might affect your HAZCOM training or PPE. Your written program also should describe how SDSs are maintained in your workplace and how employees can access them. So this would mean basically, are you keeping them in hard copy or electronically, maybe both. Um, a few things to note here. OSHA says SDSs must be readily available to employees in their work area, and there can't be any barriers to access, like having to ask a supervisor for an SDS or keeping SDSs in a locked cabinet. And a couple notes here on storing them electronically. OSHA says there must be an adequate backup system in place in the event of a power outage, equipment failure, or any other emergency involving that primary electronic system. And of course, employees must be trained on how to use that electronic system and be able to obtain hard copies if they would need one. And in the event of an medical emergency, hard copy SDSs must be immediately available to medical personnel. And finally, your program also should describe what employees should do if there's a missing SDS. And during an inspection, OSHA will interview employees to determine if they know where to find the SDSs and if they understand how to use the information on the SDSs. And if SDSs are provided on a company website, OSHA will determine if all employees have access and that they know how to use that system. And continuing on with written program requirements for SDSs, your program also should include the procedure you'll follow when an SDS is not received at the first time of shipment. And be aware, I think Cindy had mentioned this, that if a manufacturer, importer, or distributor doesn't provide an SDS with the first shipment of a chemical, you should contact the supplier to obtain one. And OSHA requires that the manufacturer or importer provide this information upon request. If applicable, your program should include a list of chemicals without SDSs and copies of request letters or emails that you've sent to the manufacturer or supplier for your, just for your records and to show a good faith effort of compliance. And finally, if you generate SDSs internally, you must outline the procedure for updating the SDS when new and significant health information is found. So next, let's take a look at what your written program should include when it comes to employee information and training. First, you will want to identify the name or job title of the person responsible for conducting training. And OSHA doesn't specify who can conduct HASCOM training, and that person does not need any certification to do that. As the employer, OSHA says you can determine who's qualified to do training, but they do expect that that trainer would have the knowledge and understanding to present the information so that it's understandable to all employees and that it's specific to the workplace. Next, you should identify which employees will receive training. And if you're training all employees, just be sure to state that in your program. HASCOM does require you to train employees who are exposed to hazardous chemicals under normal conditions of use and in foreseeable emergencies. And foreseeable emergency is defined under HASCOM as any potential occurrence, such as an equipment failure or rupture of containers, which could result in an uncontrolled release of a hazardous chemical into your workplace. Training must include your temporary employees who are exposed to hazardous chemicals, and OSHA says that host employers are responsible for, for providing site-specific hazard training. If you have some employees who are occasionally in an area where chemicals are stored or used, and you're not quite sure whether these employees are exposed, it's best to include them in your training program because it's better to train too many employees than too few. And those employees who encounter hazardous chemicals only in non-routine isolated instances, such as office workers or bank tellers, would not have to receive HAZCOM training. Now you may wish to describe the format of your training program for example, would you use classroom instruction or online training, maybe a combination of those things? Um, there will always have to be some site-specific training, such as informing employees of where the SDSs are and where your written program can be found. Um, any methods of presenting the material can be used. You can use um, classroom instruction, as we said, or online training. And keep in mind that the training must be conducted in a manner and language that employees can understand. So if they receive job instructions in a language other than English, then the training and information will need to be conducted in that same language. 
And you should also take into consideration the education and technical background of your employees to ensure that they completely understand the information being given to them. So as an example, if they have low literacy, you may consider verbal instruction versus reading documents. And it's important, of course, to create a climate where employees feel free to ask questions. This will really help to ensure that they have understood the information that you're trying to convey. So now let's take a closer look at what you should include when it comes to the elements of your training program. And basically this means what are you going to talk about? Specifically, OSHA says employees must be informed of how to detect the presence or release of a hazardous chemical in the work area. And this might be monitoring conducted by the employer or continuous monitoring devices. Another training element, the physical health and other hazards of the chemicals in the work area. And be aware that training doesn't need to be conducted on each specific chemical found in the workplace, but you may um, train on categories of hazards such as carcinogens or maybe acutely toxic agents. Another element, the employees, measures employees can take to protect themselves from the hazards as a, maybe um, appropriate work practices, emergency procedures, and PPE. And finally, the details of your written HASCOM program, including explanation of the labeling system and SDSs, how to obtain and use the appropriate hazard information for the chemical, the location and availability of your written program, the hazards of non-routine tasks, and the hazards of unlabeled pipes. Your description of employee training should also include the procedure to train employees at the time that they're initially signed to the job and when a new hazard is introduced into the workplace. The procedure to train employees when they're potentially exposed to chemicals used by other employers on multi-employer work sites. And finally, you may wish to describe how training is documented, such as maybe a copy of a training attendance sheet signed by employees. It's an industry best practice to maintain records of OSHA employee training, although OSHA doesn't require it under the HASCOM standard. However, keeping records would help organize your own training program. And of course, it also demonstrates to OSHA that you're complying with the training requirement. Cindy? Thanks, Rachel. So let's take another poll question. On your screen, let's see. To the best of your knowledge, does your HASCOM training go over the content and availability of your written program. So while we're waiting for people to take the poll, let's address this training question. The HASCOM standard says in part that employers shall provide employees with effective information and training. So you might be wondering what does OSHA consider as effective? In a letter of interpretation, OSHA says information and training provided to employees should allow them to perform their work in a safe and healthful, healthful manner that complies with OSHA requirements, and that the information is presented in a manner that they're capable of understanding in both language and vocabulary perspective, which is kind of what Rachel was just talking about. So that's clear as mud, right? So actually OSHA's intentions by being a bit gray here as far as what's, you know, what training should be provided and how it should be provided is really to give employers flexibility in how they meet the regulatory requirements. So they understand that each company process, use of chemicals, and even workers are very unique. So they kind of give a little bit of flexibility there to make sure that employers are covering the training in a way that suits them, but is also providing a safe workplace and a healthy workplace. So the important thing to remember is that it's not enough to just complete training. It must be effective training. If it's inadequate and employees don't understand it, OSHA can issue citations for that. So now let's take a look at the poll results. So it looks like we have 83% that are saying yes. So your, your training does include information on the written HASCOM program. So that is absolutely perfect. Okay, so while OSHA doesn't require that you evaluate your training program, you must consider, you may want to consider doing so to ensure that it's effective for your employees. So take a look at it and consider including in the program a discussion of your evaluation or feedback process, because you'll want to be gathering information from employees on the training that they received. They want to know, you want, you'll want to know what formats might work better and whether or not what they learned has value to them. So the evaluation could be in the form of a sheet that's presented at the end of the class, or even better, an online survey to be completed maybe a day or two after the training, just to get them thinking a little bit about what they learned a couple of days ago and, and have it sink in maybe a second time. 
So your evaluation should also include observations of how the training has affected their behavior. For example, if employees have better compliance with the use of protective measures, such as wearing PPE when it's appropriate, this could factor into your evaluation of your program. While OSHA doesn't require refresher training, it's an opportunity to review your HAZCOM program and your training. So you do wanna make sure that you, do, you take that into consideration as well. Providing training once, then assuming that several years later, employees are still not knowledgeable is a risky assumption. So it's really wise to set up a system for periodically retraining your employees. It doesn't have to be an annual full-blown training session. So for example, if you have a monthly or quarterly safety meeting, occasionally remind your employees of the training topics for HASCOM, like where the SDSs are located, how to access them, what a pictogram means, just simple things like that. And remember, you, if you do regularly provide refresher training, make sure that you cover that in, the, in your written program. So anything that you're doing, you wanna make sure that you have in that program. So now let's shift gears a little bit and turn to the chemical inventory that we talked about earlier. Your written program must include a list of hazardous chemicals known to be present in the workplace. This is known as an, a chemical inventory or some people refer to it as chemical list. And it can be maintained by work area or for the workplace as a whole, whatever suits your individual um, setup. But it must include all hazardous chemicals present even if the chemicals are in storage. So compiling the inventory for the entire workplace may be most suitable, most suitable for very small facilities, while for larger facilities or workplaces, it may be more convenient to compile lists of chemical hazards or hazardous chemicals by the work area and then assemble them all together as one list for the workplace. As new chemicals are purchased, the list must be updated. So don't forget to do that. It's also advisable to note when chemicals are obsoleted from an inventory. I wouldn't really recommend taking them completely off the inventory because there are, you'll lose historical information and exposure records that you might need, but you could at least cross through or note when something's no longer on site just to kind of clean up your inventory a little bit. Um, the chemical inventory must be made available upon request to employees, their designated representatives, and don't forget also available to OSHA if they're to ask. So to prepare a comprehensive chemical list, performed, perform a department by department search for every chemical present. Include cleaning supplies such as bathroom and window cleaners, grounds maintenance chemicals such as weed killers and fertilizers, vendor samples being used on trial basis, fuels, paints, as well as chemicals used in daily operations. Be sure, be sure that you check all your cabinets, closets, and other storage areas or hidden corners that you may be storing things in. Sometimes mezzanines are even a place where things might be stored, so keep those in mind as well. Sometimes people think of chemicals as being only liquids in containers. Don't forget the HASCOM standard covers chemicals in all physical forms. So this means liquids, solids, gases, vapors, fumes, mists, any of that, whether they are contained or not. The hazardous nature of the chemical and the potential for exposure are what factors in to determine whether a chemical is covered by the standard. So remember that. <coughs> Excuse me. In addition to spotting chemicals in containers and pipes, think about the chemicals that are generated during work operations as well. For example, welding fumes or dusts or exhausts are all sources of chemical exposures. Some other suggestions for preparing your chemical inventory might include reading hazardous, hazard labels that you receive from your suppliers during shipment or making a list of chemicals that are potentially hazardous at, a, at any of your sites, or maybe noting the storage and use locations of the products or noting the hazards as found on the labels that you have. Purchasing records are also very helpful. So prior to purchasing chemicals, you can review the hazards of the chemicals and evaluate if, if less hazardous chemicals can be purchased instead. That will also affect your inventory. So while compiling the inventory, consider listing the substances separately by department. You'll find that this might make it a little bit easier to conduct employee training later to know which chemicals are used in which departments. So here's a slide that would just hopefully helps get you thinking a little bit. A partial list of 
regulated substances that you are more than likely already have on your workplace. So you can see here anywhere from acids to caustics to dusts or glues or lacquers or wood preservatives. A lot of these are common in a lot of workplaces. So again, just, just a few things to, to think about. So the inventory that we've been talking about may be kept using the product identifier from the SDS. So it may be kept by product name or number as long as the identity used on the list matches that used on both the safety data sheet and the label so the documents can be cross-referenced. OSHA doesn't specifically require that your inventory contains anything other than the product identifier. But, it, but in addition to including the inventory in your written program, it can be used for other purposes. So for example, OSHA requires the employers to keep chemical exposure records such as safety data sheets, I mentioned that a little bit earlier, for 30 years after the chemical is no longer used. So in lieu of keeping the SDS for 30 years, you could use your chemical inventory as the exposure record if you add the dates that the chemicals were used and where they were used by the used in the facility. So secondly, EPA requires you to report your chemicals under the Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act or the EPCRA. Under SDS reporting, you could use your chemical inventory if it lists all the hazards chemical or your hazardous chemicals present, present at the facility at or above threshold levels and the chemicals are grouped by specific health and physical hazards. So in this case, the list must contain the chemical or common name of each hazardous chemical as provided on the SDS. So your chemical inventory can also be cross-referenced to your toxic released inventory or your tier two reports to help make sure that all chemicals have been accounted for for those reports. The Toxic Substances Control Act also requires you, re you create a written HASCOM program for certain chemical substances. And finally, your chemical inventory can be used to decide which chemicals to dispose of. It kind of talked about obsoleting them earlier, as well as to identify potential unsafe storage areas and techniques. For example, some chemicals shouldn't be stored near others due to incompatibilities and potential reactions. So, so a chemical inventory is not only keeping all of your hazardous chemicals and keeping you compliant with HAZCOM, but you can have it for these other resources, your EPA requirements and such. So it's actually a very, very um, helpful document. So I'm gonna toss it back to Rachel for some discussion about state plans and multi-agency work situations. All right, thanks Cindy. So we will take, first take a look at multi-employer work sites. Um, OSHA says that where there's more than one employer operating on a site and employees may be exposed to the hazardous chemicals used by the other employers, your written HASCOM program must address how on-site access to SDSs will be provided to the other employers. And you don't have to physically give the other employers the SDSs, but you must let them know where they are, such as maybe in a general employer's trailer. And second, you must address how these employers will be informed of any needed precautionary measures and finally, you must address how the other employers will be informed of your in-house labeling system. And OSHA allows you to decide on that method of communication information exchange. Each employer on a multi-employer worksite must make a written HASCOM program available to their own employees, whether they generate the hazard or the hazard is generated by other employers on the site. So if a guest employer intends for their employees to obtain HASCOM information from another employer's written program, this must be stated in the guest's program. Although HASCOM doesn't require you to evaluate and reassess your written program, OSHA says you must maintain it. So the best way to achieve this is to review it periodically just to make sure it's still working and meeting its objectives and revise it as appropriate when there are changed conditions in the workplace, such as maybe PPE or new chemicals, new hazards, um, maybe changes in processes that affect employee exposures. Assigning responsibility to one person for keeping the written program up to date can ensure that it remains compliant. The names or job titles of people designated as responsible for the different parts of the program also should be current. And program coordinators should routinely walk around the workplace to check that containers are labeled and that workers are following established work practices to protect themselves from chemical exposure. So in addition to the federal HASCOM standard, many states and territories have been approved by OSHA to operate their own safety and health programs. These state plan states must have standards that are equivalent to or more stringent than federal OSHA's rules, and they may have additional requirements that could involve HASCOM. 
And most of these states do adopt federal OSHA rules as is, but this is not always the case. So you probably should check your state requirements. And the following states have more stringent HAZCOM requirements that may impact you. Alaska, California, Hawaii, Maryland, Michigan, Minnesota, Oregon, and Tennessee. And it's also noteworthy that Massachusetts recently became a state plan state for state and local public sector employers in the state. And beyond this, any state could have right to know laws and regulations that are more stringent. Back to you, Cindy. Thank you, Rachel. Ah, uh, yes, compliance trouble spots. <laughs> this slide highlights some of those most common challenges surrounding the written HASCOM program. During an inspection, OSHA will confirm that you have a written HASCOM program and that it addresses all of the required topics for your workplace. When addressing your compliance with HASCOM training requirements, OSHA inspectors will talk to workers to determine if they've received training, if they know what they're exposed to in the workplace, and if they know where to obtain substance-specific information on labels and safety data sheets. If the inspector detects a trend in employee responses that indicates maybe training is not being conducted or is conducted in a cursory fashion that doesn't really meet the intent of the standard, the inspector will take a closer look into your work, your um, written program and how it's being implemented. So your program should provide enough details so that OSHA can assess whether a good faith effort is being made to meet the requirements of the HASCOM standard. This may include showing what information was provided during your training, so don't be surprised if that's what's requested. You're expected to provide access upon request to your written program to all employees, their representatives, and OSHA. And don't forget, failure to show these things is actually a violation. So you might wish to review OSHA directive, and it's written on the screen here, CPL 02-02-079 for more information about what an OSHA inspector will look for in your written program. Today, we looked at what OSHA requires in a written HASCOM program. While we covered a lot of ground, we hope that you've taken away a better understanding of your written program requirements. We've provided here a brief checklist to help with some compliance. So um, you'll wanna make sure that you, you create and review your written HASCOM program, create and review your chemical inventory. And again, that can be by department, by work site, facility, however you deem appropriate. Check your safety data sheets against your chemical inventory to be sure that the cross-reference is making sense and it's adequate for what you have on your sites. Make sure your containers are labeled. And again, don't forget the secondary containers if they're not being emptied over cross shifts. Provide effective training to exposed employees, which means effective meaning that they understand what they were trained and can you know, put forth uh, whatever actions they need to to prove that the training is effective. And ensure your program covers non-routine tasks, unlabeled pipes, and multi-employer work sites. And lastly, make sure your program is available. Like Rachel was saying, it can be digital as long as they can access it, or it can be in written form, whichever is best. So we're going to take another uh, poll here, just because they're so fun to do. And while we're doing this, let's move on to questions. I want to first address one that came in about our new chemical management service. Um, just to let everybody know, this service provides support and guidance for these core areas of your HASCOM program. So again, if you'd like more information on the J.J. Keller Chemical Management Service, just let us know by selecting your interest in the poll that you see above. And you can select as many as you desire on that poll. And as a thank you, we will email a copy of our brand new chemical management report. Okay, and it looks like we have some questions coming in right now. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Cindy, 
for sharing your insights with us today on this important topic. Uh, before we start the Q&A, I want to let everyone know about the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important to us because it does help us to improve our future webcasts. Now, we, let's get to some of those questions. We have quite a few coming in here and keep them coming, folks. We have a good amount of time to answer your questions today. Um, Rachel, I first wanted to ask you, um, someone from our audience shared um, a specific scenario at their workplace. And um, this person asks, uh, we do not purchase in bulk or store chemicals. Our employees purchase in market only the amount of chemicals that they will use for a project and any remaining chemicals when the project is completed are left with the client. With those things in mind, do we need to include labeling in the written program? Let's say that since those, it sounds like you're buying them, if I'm understanding, buying them in a retail, re, retail or just what you need for the project, and they're already labeled with, under the Consumer Protection Act, so you would not need to include the labeling in your program. Okay, excellent. Thank you for that. Um, Cindy, we had a question come in that I wanted to share with you uh, about GHS labels. Um, and... Someone asks, are these GHS formatted labels required to be used by manufacturers or distributors of hazardous chemicals, even if a product consists of a smaller individual container, containers? And the example this uh, questioner gives is a case of spray paint cans or a case of quart-sized paint thinner, or can an alternative label be used on these types of products or containers? So typically manufacturers and distributors are going to be using the GHS formatted labels to be consistent across the board. However, they are for smaller quantities, um, could use an alternative label, but they do have to still fulfill the requirements within the, the standard as far as the um, product identifier, the hazards that are involved, um, some danger precautionary statements, things like that, as long as they're adequately warning those uh, users of the exposures and protective measures. Okay, excellent. Thank you for that. Um, Rachel, I wanted to toss the next question your way. It was an interesting question. And someone asks, uh, as a freight forwarder, do we need to include the materials we ship daily on the chemical list or just the chemicals that our maintenance crew uses? Um, in that case, you could just um, include the chemicals that your maintenance crew uses. You don't have to include anything that you ship on your daily on your chemical inventory. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, Cindy, I wanted to ask you, you had mentioned earlier uh, the term HNOC or hazards not otherwise classified. I wonder if you could kind of give some examples of that and are those industry specific hazards? So they're not necessarily industry. Well, I guess you could categorize them in different industries, sure. But basically, a, a hazard not otherwise classified is, are going to be some of those that are um, they're not readily falling under one category or another. Um, I'm just trying to come up off the top of my head with some examples. Rachel, can you help me out with an example real quick? Another one. I'm, tr I'm trying to think of another one. Oh, I know. I the top of my head, I can't think of anything. I know, like you said, it doesn't readily fit under any of the categories that under HASCOM, but I, off the top of my head, I can't think of other ones. Okay, we can move forward on that then. Um, Rachel, I did want to ask you our next question. Um, you had mentioned the role of a program coordinator, and um, someone wanted to know, does this person have to be at a certain level of an organization? For example, a supervisor or a safety person, uh, are there requirements for that person? No, OSHA doesn't have any requirements for that person. So it would be anyone that would, would be that you deem qualified to hold that role. There's no specific OSHA qualification for that. Okay, excellent. Uh, we just had a question come in, someone asking, how often should, uh, Cindy, I'll ask you this, how often should supervisors evaluate and reassess their written HASCOM programs? 
so there's not really a, a regulation that says XYZ. I would recommend uh, it's feasible to do it annually. People can obviously do it more often, but you also wanna do that anytime there are going to be changes, whether it be in your chemicals if, or your inventory, whether it be in your workforce, anytime there's a major change, processes, anything like that, that may alter the program itself or any component of the program, especially training, anything that's going to affect your training, you'll want to update and do a review of your HASCOM written program. Um, or if you're in, like your inventory changes, it's, it's a lot easier to just make sure you do something annually uh, to make sure that you're on top of it. But definitely anytime there's a major change, you'll also want to go through and just make sure that you're, you're on board with anything. If you're bringing on more contractors or, you know, working with other agencies, that would be another indicator to maybe go through your program and make sure you're, that your written program is matching what you're doing, um, whether it be communicating with people or what your labeling process, uh, if you've changed it or have decided to do a different way of labeling. Um, so change is, is always good. And annually is usually what I would go with. Okay, great advice. Thank you. Uh, Rachel, the next question I'll send your way. Um, someone asks, um, what about business offices that use chemicals, for example, such as computer toner or whiteout or things like that? Um, generally speaking, OSHA does um, state that products, office products are exempt from the HASCOM standard. The only thing here might be the toner. If someone regularly changes toner, that is most likely going to have to be part of your HASCOM program. And you would need an SDS for that because if someone is changing that regularly, they would be exposed to that. But things like paper and pens and whiteout, you would not that would not be covered under the standard. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Um, Cindy, next question for you. Um, how often do you need to update your SDSs? And uh, someone mentions, is every five years correct? So this is kind of a tricky one where you need to keep track of whether there's a change in that particular chemical. So doing a, a spot check every five years is a fantastic way to do things. I did work in the chemical industry and we, we found that a lot of times things were changing before that five-year plan. So again, it's, it's very common to, you know, do an annual review of those. Typically speaking, you will know when something has been updated, when you receive a new shipment, they'll send the new safety data sheet. Just so just double check that that's the most recent one in your inventory or in your safety data sheet database. Um, so that's another way to keep on top of it. Uh, but really, it's kind of you want to make sure I would do a minimum of every five years, but um, definitely review again as things are changing. So again, I, I keep going back to that word change, but sure. anytime something's changing is always a good time to review things that are involved with that change. Terrific advice. Thank you for that. Um, Rachel, we had an interesting question come in about digital SDSs. And our attendee would like to know, in the event of a technology failure to gain access to the SDSs, do companies need to have a hard copy on file in, in this case? That would certainly be a best practice. And I, if you also in that um, directive that we had mentioned earlier, that CPL 02-02-079, they do also have a few other um, options for um, backup systems in the event that there's a power outage. Okay, excellent. Cindy, I'll send the next question your way. Um, and someone asks, could you be more specific on SDSs for items that exist in a first aid kit? Sure. So typically you don't need a safety data sheet with um, items that are in your first aid kit. For one, the quantities aren't typically um, at, at a you know hazardous level, but also they're regulated by a different means. So anytime there's a OSHA doesn't require labeling or SDSs for uh, certain things like chemicals, pesticides, food additives, or anything that's dictated or the chemicals controlled by another agency. And in this case, it would typically be like the FDA or somebody like that. So that's usually why there's uh, not an SDS required for first aid kit items. Okay, excellent. Um, Rachel, question for you. Um, someone asking uh, for janitorial services that use chemicals for cleaning, uh, do they need to keep track of those? I would say in this instance, most likely, I would say that probably would fall under HASCOM because it's likely that you're using those 
in a manner that's more frequent than a regular consumer would use them. So I would say that probably is a yes to those. Okay. And it looks like we have time for one more question today. And Cindy, I'm going to send that your way. Um, what's the best way to prepare a chemical inventory? Great question. So you want to first identify what's considered hazardous chemicals in the workplace or the work site and, and inventory those as to what the employees may be exposed to under nor con normal conditions. And then as Rachel kind of explained what a foreseeable emergency would be. So like you could maybe anticipate that if I were working on a pipeline that has a, a certain grade of oil in it and it and it could burst, then that's a potential foreseeable emergency. So you'd want to make sure that you include those. Um, inventories can be compiled in so many different ways that work individually for the company. So it could be a particular location, it could be individual work areas, it could even be sorted by types of chemicals, or there'd be paints or, you know, flammable liquids, any way that really works for the company um, is best, or you can break it down routine task versus non routine um, tasks, you can do chemicals or hazard types or even how it's being used. So whatever makes sense for the company is really the best way to do that. Um, and often using a database or some sort of a, you know, a electronic means of managing those is also very helpful. You can set triggers to go back and review if those are still applicable or if they're obsoleted from the agency or things like that. So um, just some things to think about there. Okay. All excellent things to think about for sure. Um, folks, unfortunately, we've run out of time today. We thank you all for attending our presentation and we appreciate you taking some time to share your feedback via our survey. We wanna send a special thank you today to our terrific presenters, Rachel Krubsack and Cindy Pauley and the entire team from our sponsor at JJ Keller. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Take care everyone and have a safe day. <music>